Hey players, this is a special bonus edition. We've got Kathy Reichs, the number one New York Times bestselling author, inspiration for the TV series Bones as seen on Fox, and author of The Bone Hacker. Just been released. We've got a special interview with her as a bonus episode for you guys coming up right now. Hola, 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 amigos, amigos, players, playwrights, doo-doo-dets, everybody in between. This is a special, this is a bonus episode we're doing. Why are we doing this? Because number one, we've got one of the biggest names out there writing the kind of books you want to read. Number two, it's because they reached out to us. I said, we don't normally get this caliber of people reaching out to us. We're like little schmucks out here on the internet. And now we've got Kathy Reichs, author of book number 22, if I'm correct, right, in the series? Number 22 in that series, yes. Kathy Reich's The Bone Hacker just came out August 1st. So, and we're recording this August 9th. So, we hope to give you a huge bump in sales, you know, push it to the top again, you know. That'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, but, but Kathy, welcome. We really appreciate you. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Thank you. Welcome, Kathy. It's good to have you on here. And there's actually a, a third part that goes along with that, Morgan. We can bring her on here because it's our podcast and we can. That's right. Dang, dag nabbit. <laughs> and before we start, I want to give a shout out to Gates, who's hopefully studying hard to be a forensic anthropologist. So, yeah, right. I, I I know people, I now these people owe me because I got her daughter a shout out. So thank <laughs> you. <very much. laughs> nice. hey, thank you so much, Kathy. But I'm fascinated. How did you get started in this thing of ours, you know, Cosa Nostra business? Were you like digging up stuff in your parents' backyard, digging up things, looking for things? Or how did you get started in forensic anthropology? Well, I, you got it partly right, uh, digging stuff up. I started out in archaeology. As an undergrad, I was fascinated with archaeology. I got my degree in anthropology, focusing on bioarchaeology, human skeletons. Went through grad school doing the same thing, bioarchaeology. But what interested you in that to begin with? I mean, I I was always interested in nature and in um, collecting frogs and snakes and things when I was a kid. (laughs) And Something about bones. Bones are people, but they're also hard physical science. So that that combo appealed to me. So I stayed with it through grad school. I was actually I wrote a a short story called First Bones. It appeared in a collection called The Bone Collection. And um, it's Tempe's origin story. And it's also my origin story. She's in her lab one day. She's working on her archaeological specimens, her, her you know, ancient skeletons. And because she's the bones lady at the university, cops showed up you know, with a case that they wanted her to look at. And that's exactly how I started. And I did that. I remember that case. And I was just, I love archaeology, but you're not going to change anyone's life. Whereas when you do forensic work, you have to be right. When you tell a family, this is your missing member, or when you testify in court, you're going to impact lives. And I really like the relevance of that. So I retrained and took my board certification exams and I shifted into forensics um, and began doing casework and have stayed there ever since until recently when I've largely retired. Now, I think I saw that you grew up in Chicago. Partly, partly in Minnesota, partly in Chicago. I was born which, in Chicago. Which part of Minnesota, hey? Just <laughs> just south of the Twin Cities. That's my sister and brother-in-law live in uh, Apple Valley. Um, okay. okay. And they've got a cabin up at, uh, their family shares a cabin up at East, East Rush Lake. So, you know. Okay. okay. It's been a while since I've been there. We moved back to the Chicago area when I was 16. So it's been at least 10 years since I was so, so growing up in those areas and with your interest as a child, were there a lot of bones in those areas? I mean, in Chicago right now, there probably are, but back then? Yeah, well, you know, we'd stumble upon an animal bone every now and then and get very excited. We had a little lab in the basement and we would analyze things in, in our we had a chemistry set and a microscope. And my sister and I would analyze things in the lab. What was your favorite kind of books growing up? What what were you reading? I liked mystery books. I liked Nancy Drew. I read The Hardy Boys. I liked that kind of thing a lot. Not exclusively, but I I do remember reading that whole Nancy Drew series. Yeah, it's such great. The other thing, too, is it took you on. I remember as a kid, too, you know, reading those books. It's like, this is so cool. I grew up in the, my dad was military, moved around the world, but ended up in the Midwest, Kansas. And it's like it would take you on journeys I could never go on living in a little small town. Yeah. 
let's talk about your first case. You said they brought you your first case. What was your first case that started you on this whole uh, journey that you're on now? It was a child. I think she was around five years old, went missing in Charlotte, North Carolina, back in, oh, back in the 80s. And um, I remember there was a thunderstorm that night. And I remember wondering if that poor child is out there all by herself in the thunder, or worse, not by herself. Uh, out in this thunderstorm. And sure enough, about three months later, they found little bones in the woods and uh, they asked me to come and help recover them and to analyze them to see if it could possibly be this child, which it was. And what were the circumstances of her? Well, you know, did you ever establish cause and manner of death? Yeah, she was murdered. She was, uh, what was, I forget the fellow's name. He, he murdered, uh, three children altogether. Uh, he was convicted, I believe, for the murder of a child, 10-year-old, who lived blocks from Neely Smith, the one I worked on, um, Amanda Ray, I think her name was. And he was convicted of that and, and sentenced to, I forget, life in prison, I think. Now, that, that was your first case, finding bones for a dead body, right? Uh, well, unless you count all the, you know, the occasional dead animal when I was a kid. But yes, that was my first human forensic case. So what was the feeling? I mean, knowing that the small child, first of all, it just t- tugs at your heartstrings, but what was the personal feeling with you? I mean, you, this is your chosen profession, and this is your first case as a small child. It's, it's got to be somewhat gut-riching, I would think, to start with. It was, it was, but also it was very satisfying to be able to give that family closure. I mean, there's nothing worse than not know. well, I've never been in that position, but I can imagine not knowing is just torture. Yeah, it's one thing I hated going to autopsies of kids or whatever. I'd work even even accidental stuff, whatever, or SIDS cases or stuff. You know, it's like because my kids were about the same age at that time, too. You know, and it's like, man, just kids uh, just that's one of the toughest things to do. Um, But so out of that. Um, and, and you start working on stuff. When did the book bug hit you? You said you already wrote like, you know, the origin story, but was that just more of a passing thing? Or did you think, hey, I've got this career here, but I also want to be an author, um, which is a tough thing to do as well, too, when you've got a day job? Yeah, I re- wrote the origin story much, much later. Um, the first book was Deja Dad. I, uh, back in 94, a number of things came together. I made full professor at the university so I could do whatever the hell I wanted to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I had just worked on a serial murder case with some very interesting elements. And um, I had three kids heading, wanting to go to private universities. And, you know, university faculty aren't that well paid. So I had a colleague who was writing romance novels straight to paperback. And I read one and I thought... Ooh, I can do this. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I just, I, I'm being kind. So I, <laughs> I, I told myself 50 rejects. If I, I'm going to finish the book, and that took me two years because I had to fit it in between teaching and casework and commuting between the Carolinas and Quebec. And I told myself if I get 50 reject slips from publishers, I'll take that as a commentary on my writing skills and go back to my day job. So I mailed it off. In those days, you sent the whole hard copy printout thing. And I, I mailed it off to Scribner. And that was the first house I sent it to. And they bought it. That is unreal. I keep thinking of Stephen King wrote this, uh, you know, uh, his, his book, you know, memoirs, you know, on writing and stuff. Yes, it, I think for Carrie, he had like 26 or 28 rejects. Yep. And he nailed them, you know, on the wall. You you know, you should have played the lottery. As we're doing this, they had the Mega Millions winner last night somewhere in Florida. Somebody is $1.5 billion richer. Oh, let me tell you, not to change the subject, but we just saw that on the news and it was purchased at a Publix and that's where we bought our tickets yesterday. Ah. And right. I just thought, if, if we hit this, I'm probably going to be late for this interview. There you go. <laughs> uh, Murphy's Law, though. You know how that goes. There um, you go. Huh? So, um, but your first book, Deja Blood, what did you base that on? I mean, obviously, you're pulling uh, Tempe from your own, you know, kind of, you say, origin story. What kind of cases did you pay uh, uh, base uh, Deja Blood on? It was Deja Dead. I mean, Deja Dead. I'm sorry. Deja. We're talking blood, dead, bones. I'm sorry. Yeah, Deja was, Dead. On a serial murderer up in Montreal, he had killed two women and their bodies were found right away. So I wasn't involved. That would go straight to the pathologist for regular autopsy. <clears throat> but when he was arrested, he admitted to having killed a third woman two years earlier cut her up and buried her in five different locations. So that's the case I was involved in. Not so much identity, 
because we know who it was supposed to be, we could pull dental records. But analyzing what was a telltale testimony in his murder trial was the manner in which he'd gone about the dismemberment. It was very unusual. And I was able to say to uh, the investigating officers, this guy, whoever this perp is, didn't know who it was at that point, you know, he knows his anatomy. He's either a butcher or he's a surgeon or, or something, orthopedist or something like that. And it turned out he had Serge Archambault was his name. He had been a butcher for a long period of his colorful career. So um, that was a very interesting case. So I used that as the basis of changing all the names, the dates, the, you know, the actual uh, places. Um, that was the basis for Deja Dead. And unfortunately, I mean, unfortunately, but we're like when you're writing, with the number of cases and the number of unique things out there, there's always a constant, you know, storyline. There's always a new story out there, which, you know, as you look at doing it, but you mentioned something and both Steve and I keyed in on it. We want, how the hell did you get into Montreal, Quebec? You know, parlez-vous français? Comment allez-vous? Ça va bien? How did that happen? Somewhere back in the day, I decided I wanted to learn French. So I went and sat in with my students on a French 101 class. Je me par, you know, je, je m'appelle, Kathy, that kind of thing. And um, shortly after, a, an offer came through a faculty meeting for something called NFE, National Faculty Exchange, whereby a professor from one institution changes places with a professor from another institution for a year. And there was a gentleman at one of the universities in Montreal who wanted to come to Charlotte, North Carolina. So I applied for that and off I went with my one class of French 101 under my belt. And while I was there teaching at Concordia and McGill, the lab, the forensic lab wanted someone who was board certified and could work in French. So I think there was a pool of one and I got the job. <laughs> and then at the end of that year, we just struck up an arrangement whereby I would go back and forth every six weeks or so and uh, work on cases as, as they were, as they came in. Well, I've worked quite a lot with the RCMP, OPP folks like that. And I will tell you, Montreal, Quebec, uh, they are a unique thing in and of themselves. <laughs> <laughs> they pray. It's very true. Yes. Uh, I was speaking at a Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police conference, and I'm talking to this gentleman who's going to be on the dais with me because we're doing, we're both kind of doing a keynote, and we're talking English. But when he gets up there, he will not speak English. He will only speak French and had to have an interpreter. So, uh, But it was so unique. But I have to tell you, write a passage. Did you, When's the first time you ate poutine? I ate it once. <laughs> that was enough. I did, try it. I did try it. Just looking at it, it's so unappealing. But yeah. Oh, my God. There's like 10,000 calories looking at it, 20,000 if you actually eat it. Yeah. Yeah. So so as you as you started writing these books, what was what was the response on uh, Deja Dead? What kind of response did you get from the market or from, you know, like your publicist, you know, your, your um, agent and stuff that encouraged you to start writing the rest of the series? Well, when I got the offer to buy Deja Dead, it was for two books. It was a two-book deal. So right out the door, I had a motivator to go ahead and, and write the second book. And both Deja Dead and Death Du Jour, the second book, they all had a – the first five books had a play on French in the title because they Tempe was working in, in Quebec and in, in the United States, in the Carolinas. Um, so this, they both did very well. They both made it onto the New York Times bestseller list. So I, the next contract, I think, was either for two more and then a contract for five more. So I, I you know, I was under contract, and therefore I was motivated to to write a book every year. Was that your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Well, because the thing is, that takes a lot of work to do that. Did you contemplate giving up your professional career to just focus on writing, or how did you balance the two? That's a lot of work. Right. At, at, I wrote the first two while I was still teaching full-time at university, um, after the second one, they gave me a sabbatical and you're allowed to have sabbatical in North Carolina for up to six or seven years. So I was on sabbatical for seven years and then they just shifted my line to the chancellor's office for the next 10, 10 years or more. So I was still on faculty, but I never, I never taught after 1999 or so. So I was just writing and doing the forensic casework. And 
Go ahead, Steve. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm just. I was just looking over your credentials. Holy cow! <laughs> I mean, I don't think I could read that in the whole podcast right here. There's so much. You you are very impressive. You have a very impressive background, your education, your experience. Oh, thank you. Well, That's a very amazing. It, it keeps me off the streets, you know. <laughs> well, one thing that really uh, kind of drew my attention is that you're only. You are one of only 100 forensic anthropologists ever certified by the American Board of Forensic Anthropology. And I'll tell you what, I, when I got your book, I had to I had to look up and see what that, a forensic anthropologist, sorry. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I learned. Yeah, there may be more than 100 now. I don't know. Some have passed the exam. Others have died. So I don't know where we are in numbers. When I got my certificate, it was number 36. That's wow. how few of us there were. Wow. I, I bet you're, I can just imagine the Mecklenburg Police Department and Charlotte love having access to you there right in the same city when you're in town. Yeah, I, I do a lot more work outside of my home jurisdiction, interestingly. but What is the farthest you've gone to do a case? Oh, um, one of the books I wrote, gosh, that's hard to say. One of the books I wrote, um, well, Guatemala. I went to Guatemala to help exhume a mass grave. Um, I went to Afghanistan on a USO tour to thank the troops for their service. That wasn't really doing uh, forensic anthropology work. Um, one of the books is based in Yellowknife, way up in the Northwest Territories. Uh, if I go someplace and I find it interesting, then I will use that as a setting for a Temperance Brennan novel. So she's gotten around. I, I went to Israel. Um, so one of the books, Crossbones, is set in Israel. So I've, I've gone pretty far afield. Did you get a Did you get a chance to spend some time in Jerusalem and Old Jerusalem and tour that? Almost exclusively, um, Masada and uh, the 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 caves where the scrolls were found, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Quran where the Dead Sea Souls were. Yeah, I spent two weeks just researching and traveling around and um, contemplating the plot. And the plot of Crossbones involves a little bit of biblical archaeology as well as forensics. How did, uh, and not to change subject here, but you mentioned on a USO tour to Afghanistan, how did, how were you, how did that come about and how were you received? Because those are uh, gratis trips, right? That, that was hard duty. Um, we, uh, the, I did two, one to Afghanistan and Kyrgyzstan and one to Cuba, to Guantanamo. Uh, it's, it was organized through the International Thriller Writers. It was a small group. It was uh, Clive Cussler, uh, Mark Bowden. Uh, Sandra Brown, myself, and one other author, and we stayed mainly at Bagram uh, Air Base, Air Force Air Base. But then we would fly to Forward Operating Base just to thank the troops for their service, and they spent the whole time thanking us for coming. We spent a lot of time flying in Black Hawk helicopters and sitting next to Bar Mark Bowden, who wrote Black Hawk Down. You know, it was an interesting vibe. That's uh, that's such an honorable thing that you did there, you know. And, and I wasn't in the military, but thank you for doing that for our troops. That's very, very. That's well, that's one beyond. of the charities she supports is helping a hero. So I mean, this this is us saluting you. Thank you for Excellent. doing that. We still have a soft spot, obviously, for our military. And absolutely. Um, so well, let's 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 talk a little bit about this too, because we obviously want to talk about your book. It just came out August first. You've been on a pretty good clip, but what's very interesting is there's something we all have in common here. I don't know if you know this. So you were the inspiration for the Fox TV series Bones. Right. Your work, right? That's like one. I think it's now their longest running series. Is it, it is in the in the history of Fox? Yeah, which is now Disney. But wow, yeah. Well, and Murph was the inspiration for. Narcos on Netflix, so him and JP capturing uh, Pablo Escobar. Uh, spoiler, folks, Pablo's dead. Um, but <laughs> you always spoil it. I'm oh, sorry, I got to do that. And I, I myself, I was the inspiration for Jack Byron in 24. <laughs> oh, whoa, I think I just spit all over my computer. Who knew, right? Jack Byron, by the way, Kiefer Sutherland is Canadian. Hey, you know, yeah, there are yeah. Canadians everywhere. Our yes. producer and showrunner, Hart Hansen, for Bones, is Canadian. <clears throat> I actually had a chance to work with another long-running show, was America's Most Wanted. I was uh, their technical advisor for like a year and a half, and one of the solutions I built, we actually got onto the 1,000th episode. So, but 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 they weren't they weren't long-running. I mean, Bones is long-running in terms of like seasons. They had like uh, 1,100 episodes, I think, when they finally went off the air. But they were wow. they were doing 40. 40 to 5, 45 episodes a year because they were doing it weekly. That's insane. We were doing it weekly, but we did 22 episodes a season. And well, so heavy pace. Where, where was Bones filmed at? 
It was filmed in L.A. largely. Uh, We did one uh, special kind of two-part episode in London. But otherwise, it was filmed on the Fox lot, about 75%, and then maybe 25% on locations uh, in and around L.A. And did you have to be on set for, for every filming? No, you have to be on set. I was there a lot. And I read every single script. You know, they can just send them to you now electronically. Uh, but you have to be on scene, on set or on location if, it's, if, you've, if you're the writer, if you wrote that episode. And I did write a number of episodes over the course of the show. Wow, that's very time-consuming. It is. And writing for television is very different in many ways from writing a novel. So how did this whole thing come about? How did, how did this, how did the temperance uh, end up being uh, on a Fox show? How did that whole TV thing come about and get to you? I was approached a number of times and just none of the offers was really right. But then when I met with Hart Hansen and Barry Josephson, our two executive producers, we were just all on the same page. We wanted a character-based show. We wanted, we didn't want to do another police procedural. We wanted to keep it plausible and as realistic as possible. And we wanted to put humor into the show. I put humor in the books. And that's hard because every book, every episode deals with violent death. So to put humor in really takes a delicate touch. They called us a, the first crimity. To be honest, yeah. All right. <laughs> well, but but you know, too, working with law enforcement and stuff, there's always kind of a dark sense of humor. You know, you, you have to have you kind of have to have that to get through a lot of the horrible things that you oh, see I out know. there. I know. I took a lot of teasing over the course of my career. <laughs> well, what kind of teasing? Oh, I don't know. I can remember being at a at an exhumation, digging up a body, and all of a sudden, it, which had been there quite a while, all of a sudden these bullet casings are in there and I hadn't seen them. And, you know, the cops had tossed them in just to, to get, just to tease. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing like destroying the crime scene, is there? There you go. go. (laughs) Oh, well, Hey, so we also want to, like I said, we want to talk about your latest book, but as, as you build these things out, how tough has it been to, or I shouldn't say how tough, what's your process for keeping it fresh? I love your sense of humor, by the way, too. By the way, the uh, the French inspector that you uh, deal with, you know, in, in the beginning Louis of the book. Cardell, yes, yes. Uh, I've run into guys like that, too, and I know Murph has, too. The oh, arrogant, yeah. I know better than you. Why is this not solved? You are ruining my weekend. You, you read your description of him. You read the description of him in the book, and then you listen to how he talks, and it's like you hate this guy immediately. Yeah, <laughs> you've done well. He comes through in the and then on the Charlotte end, there's Skinny Slidell, and Skinny is sort of the southern rednecky version of Luke Pladell, who's the Quebecois version. Well, I got to tell you too. The other thing you scared the hell out of Murph. First of all, your first mistake—I will point out a mistake in the first chapter of your book. You trusted an ex-cop to say, "Hey, it's all good. Come out onto the water." So that was your—that was your first mistake. Right, right. And Murph—I mean, Murph and I were talking about this. I mean, it's like, "Hey, you're going to go out." I was kidding him. He's, you know, between narcos and everything else, he should have a yacht out in his back pond oh. and everything. And he's like, "I'm not getting." After reading the first chapter, he says, "I'm not getting on a boat again." No. <laughs> well, they made it. No spoilers. They made it. Yeah. Well, in the book. At the end, we found out about what that what ha- what really happens, and and I'm not giving it up here, but <laughs> I still don't want to go back out in the boat. <laughs> yeah. No. No. The one the the story starts out. The guy that took it in the pants is the guy on the bridge. He's up on the Jacques Cartier bridge, and he gets struck by lightning, and falls into the river. And Tempe's asked to help retrieve him and identify him, and she finds he has a tattoo. And looks it up in the FBI, well, has it looked up in the FBI uh, tattoo database, and it links to a gang in the Turks and Caicos Islands. So she calls down to the islands and gets a police detective down there who insists on coming to Montreal. And Tempe says, you don't have to do that. We'll send the body. Nope. So she comes to Montreal because she has ulterior motives. She wants to persuade Tempe to go to the Turks and Caicos to help with a serial killer situation. They've got somebody who's grabbing young male tourists killing them and hacking off their left hand. So the bone hacker. But as she's down there, the FBI becomes involved. It becomes clear that there's cyber crime going on, that someone is hacking into phones and various types of Wi-Fi systems. So it's like, a see what I'm doing there? It's like a double play on 
Hacker. It's hacker. Double Murph. That's a that's a double entendre. You know. So yes. yes. Uh, and one of these days, I'm going to reach through the screen, and just snatch yeah. him right in. Right no, you're in the not. Side I, of if you do, I, if you do, I've got the ultimate expert here to figure out the case <laughs> and what happened to me. So you know what? I, I um, this has nothing to do with your book, but one of the things that uh, I think help with my enjoyment of reading it. I read it in, in less than two days. It's it's one of these, for our listeners, it's a book that you start. It's going to be real hard to put down. But my first undercover with DEA was in 1988, early 88. And we went from Fort Lauderdale to Providencialis in, in the Turks and Caicos okay. Islands. I never even heard of these islands before. <laughs> we took an undercover boat for five days to get down there, had some mechanical issues along the way. But just what a beautiful place. It's gorgeous. And, and ever since then, I've told my wife, you and I have got to go down to TCI and, and just vacation down there. But then after reading this book, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, but what was that? There was a series, too. I can't think of it was on um, uh, one of the streaming services, but it was uh, uh, the island where they – it was kind of almost like a small Caribbean island, and everybody died every episode. I was trying to think of it. It's like – That's Death bad. paradise. Death in Paradise. That is a bad advertisement when you are a destination, <laughs> tourist destination, to say, oh, come on down, man. We've got murders, but it's okay. We solve them. You know. I, I've been to that island, and you can actually go visit the set, which is very small and very unimpressive, but you can actually go visit the set of the police department, police de- one-room police department. I think it was St. Martinique or St. Martins or... <sighs> I, I thought it was on a smaller island, but I no, I meant but the name of the the police oh, force oh, there. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, but 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 you bring up a good point. I uh, years ago, it was probably 2012. I ran into the uh, he retired from the the London Met, ended up becoming the commissioner or their chief down in uh, TCI. I had a chat with him. He said it was like his dream retirement job because it was so easy to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but you you bring up a very good point too because. You have to, they want these things solved because they rely without tourism, Turks and Caicos, their entire economy, as we saw during COVID and other places, it would just implode. Mm -hmm. So when you were down there visiting, um, what was your first, first of all, had you ever been to TCI before? Was this your first time when you were researching the book? No, that was my fourth time. My daughter got married down there. And where did you come up? So how did going down there come up with the idea for the bone hacker? What, what things led you to coming up with this plot for this, this story? My process is I decide on a setting. Um, I decide on which characters, because I have a core cast of characters. I decide which new characters I'm going to introduce. And then I decide on the on the plot line, the actual story. And that was triggered by an article I read in the New York Times, an expose by um, Ronan Farrow and a co-author on um, spywares, and particularly Pegasus, which is a NSO group. Yeah. powerful, an NSO group, which is a very powerful spyware that the American government considered buying. It can be slipped into your phone. You won't even know it's there. It's not something like you accidentally down. It's not like a malware that you accidentally downloaded, attached to something. Else. And then the government could spy on its citizens. So the U.S. government decided not to purchase Pegasus, but other countries have it. So I thought, well, that's an interesting topic and something that readers will probably be, you know, be interested in and concerned about and should be concerned about. Well, and and you mentioned in there, it's a no click, meaning you don't zero have, touch infection. Yeah. They put it on your phone. You don't have to do anything. It's there. You don't even know it's there. Yeah. And by the way, NSO Group is uh, out of Israel. It's our friends, former Unit 6800 over there. Yes. There's a little bit of Judaic uh, culture in the book. Mm-hmm. Yes, there is. And that's that's the, the thing I like about it. And what you do, especially in this book, too, is I've read books that people are trying to – and look, they're trying really hard to come up with something that you want to give enough details to make it sound authentic, but they overdo it. What I like about you is you don't overdo it. But you give enough stuff in there where people – I had to look up a couple words. I mean, I'd been through enough autopsies or other stuff. It's like, But even then, I'm like, okay, what the hell is this word? So I'm going to look it up, you know? But it makes sense. But how do you balance that between keeping it real like that? But at the point, if, if there are too many tough words or if it's too complex to figure out, people get to page 15 or 20 and they go, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't handle this. Yeah, I, I do – use science. Um, I'm a forensic scientist and the solutions to the murders are science driven. But my rule of thumb is that the science has to be short, brief. Nobody wants to read a textbook. It has to be jargon free. We can't rely on the terminology we use amongst ourselves as specialists. And it has to be entertaining. You have to keep (coughs) the reader engaged. So I think a mistake that a lot of uh, scientists and academics make is they love their area of expertise they love and they put way too much in there 
I have a colleague who wrote a, a forensic dentist wrote a book and I read it for him. I said, you got to take out, you know, 80% of all this and he wouldn't do it. And then it never got published. You know? But yeah, so I think that's uh, input. It's kind of the same skill as addressing uh, a jury. Keep it understandable. Keep it engaging. Don't dumb it down. But make it understandable. Mm-hmm. And then you've got 12 different personalities sitting right there in front of you. Yeah. <laughs> and all it takes is one. Yep. It only takes one. Well, hey, you know, the other thing you mentioned that I'm very interested to, you know, like I said, aspiring, I'm finally to that point where I've got it, you know, ready to go. It's going to go out to the door to my, you know, development editor. But sure you, yeah, now, hey, dude, I am <laughs> I am just about to finish and turn it over to him. It'll be there in two TikTok, weeks. TikTok, Morgan, TikTok. Now, we have a friend of ours who's writing a book. She's former <laughs> uh, DEA agent. And I've been kidding her. I'm ahead of her now. We keep saying TikTok, TikTok, got to get it in. But what is your process um, when you start when you start to sit down? You know, some people, they call it pantsers. They just, they start writing and they do that. Some people plot it out. And some, I've seen some people, it looks like uh, the battle plans for Normandy. You know, it's like, oh, we've got to have every contingency laid out. Where do you fall in that spectrum? Yeah, my son is what you just described. He has big whiteboards and color-coded cards and every character, every scene, everything's plotted out. I don't do that. I do maybe a six or eight chapter outline with just a little paragraph for each chapter. I know where the book is going to end. I know how it's going to end. I don't necessarily know who the villain is, who did it, who done it. Um, I just start writing. And as I write, it's a, I'm linear. I start with chapter one, two, three, four, five, and until I'm done. My daughter's a writer. And if she's in a good mood, she writes the love scene. If she's in a bad mood, she writes the death scene. I, <laughs> that's wrong. <laughs> I can't do that. Oh, I love so, it. But it's feedback. And I keep, a uh, postmortem outline. As I finish each chapter, I add it to the outline so that when I finish the book, I've got a complete outline of what happened when, if I need to go back and change something or check something or whatever. So, so how far along in the book are you before you figure out who the bad guy is? Um, or girl. Or girl. Or girl. <laughs> true, true. I say that. Um, sometimes I'm well into it. Sometimes I'm three quarters of the way through and I've, and that's what you want to do, I think, as a thriller writer. You want to point the clues at various people so that your reader is guessing and trying to figure it out before you tell them. And if you don't know yet, you know, it's probably a pretty good chance that you're going to surprise the reader at the end. And that's my job. When I read a thriller and I figure it out before the end, I'm disappointed in in the writer. Yeah, and it's, you know, and, and that's as you read these type of books, that's especially when you're getting like into the last 25%. You're already thinking, okay, who's the bad guy? Who's the bad guy here? You know, and and uh, you you threw a little hitch in that one, so I'll just leave it at that. There's a yeah, nice little surprise. That's my job. Those <laughs> twists, I have those plot twists, and sometimes they surprise me, and I think, oh, if that surprised me, that'll that'll surprise the reader. Well, hell, if you haven't got it figured out by seventy five percent, you know, it's like hell. I don't know who did it. Then you're writing, and you go, that son of a bitch. I knew he was good for it. <laughs> I was telling Kathy before and Morgan here before we started recording that. I got to like the last 20 pages of the book and it's, I mean, this is where you're just so engrossed in it. You can't set it down because this is the, you know, the, everything is coming together and I had to get on a conference call and it was just killing me that I had to put that book down <laughs> and you per- kind of push the conference call so you can get back to the book and see, you know, find out what the final outcome is there. Yeah. Well, I was telling him too, it's like, uh, I was up reading and it's like, Nor- I try to hit about 1030. I mean, you know, you want to get some good solid sleep. It was eleven forty-five, I think, two nights ago, and I'm still, God damn it, you know, just yes, yes, and I did my job. You did, well, that's the whole point. You did your job. It's the page yes. turner. It's kind of what James Patterson talked about. You know, his stuff was short, but always leaving that hook at the end. You know, to make people, does it turn the page? Yes. So, as you're writing the book, what's your what's your schedule look like when you write a book? I mean, do you write every day? Uh, do you write? Do you have a word count? What's your, what does it look like from a structure standpoint? I don't do word counts. I've never thought in terms of word counts. I think more in terms of chapters, like each chapter is going to be X number of pages with a certain font. The bigger the font, the quicker it goes. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And I try to write every chance I get uh, because I'm taken away from the keyboard so much. Uh, that when I do have a block of time free, I, I write and I write pretty much every day when I'm not on book tour or uh, engaged in something else. So would you would you say this is 
uh, at this point in your life, because how many total books have you written now, not just this series? Well, I'm working on number 23 for the Temperance Brennan. That'll be out next year. That's called Fire and Bones. It will be set in Washington, D.C. And then I did a series of young adult books, the Viral series, with my son, Brendan, and there were six of those. And then there's some t- scientific books, <laughs> textbooks no one's ever heard of. But So, so at this point in, in your writing career, is this, has this become an addiction for you, or is this what you do for enjoyment? Well, it's what I do for a living. Um, I do have these contracts that I've signed, and therefore I have a, an obligation to pr- provide a manuscript to my publisher every year. So that you know, that's a motivator. But I enjoy it. I do enjoy writing. When I'm pulled away, and this used to be true when I was doing casework, when I'd be pulled into the lab, I'd think, ah, I can't do this. i got to be home writing. And then when I was home writing and I didn't get a call for a consult case at the lab, I'd think, well, why aren't they calling me? It just reminds me, I can see a scene, it's almost like Chevy Chase vacation where at the Grand Canyon, he walks up, oh, yeah, that looks good. You walk in, you look at the set. Yeah, uh, Bob did it with the meat cleaver. Okay, I see, I got to go right. You know? In the kitchen, right? <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, our book, uh, my old DEA partner and I wrote a book about the Pablo Escobar experience and all that. And Shocker, uh, uh, spoiler, Pablo <laughs> dies. <laughs> <laughs> At the end, at the end. But um, I sat down, after, right after I retired, I sat down and, and we were just starting to work on the Narco series with Netflix. And my wife was still working full-time as a nurse. And so one day at home, I just sat down for about six hours and started making notes, you know, trying to do a little outline. And and then I just let it go for a couple of days. And I came back and read it. And I thought, what a crock of crap here. It, it sounded like a police, re- you know, I was a cop for 38 years. So it's, it sounds like a police sounds report. like a DEA goes, 6, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I, won't, I don't even want to read this. Nobody else is going to read it. But we ended up with a, a publisher and a ghostwriter. So it came out good. Well, I tell you, cops are some of the worst. You see, I, as I exited my mobile crime fighting platform, and I, you know, it's almost like you see some of these guys want to write books. I said, your point, it looks like an offense report. It doesn't look like a, you know, a... A, well, a book. It's either that or the other way around. Observe criminal, arrested same. Same. That's right. <laughs> Saw drunk, arrested same. Hey, so for you, when you do a book, if you've got a good runway, how long does it take you uh, from beginning to end to get that book done, you know, to get your uh, second draft done, let's say? Well, yeah, but part of that is research. Um, you know, part of that, I'm still editing the previous year's book. If I sat down uninterrupted, I could probably write a book, I don't know, in four or five months, but I don't sit down uninterrupted. So it takes a year. How much, and how much of that time you talked about research, uh, how much, uh, you know, percentage of effort on this goes into research? Is that like the first 25% or something like that? I put in a big chunk of research at at the, at the beginning before I start writing, I've chosen what area of science I'm going to use. And if it's not my area, uh, I contact the, whatever colleague, if they're in fire and arson or they're in hair and fiber, or, you know, mitochondrial DNA or whatever, to set the wheels in motion. And I'm lucky, uh, you know, I'm, I've been a practicing forensic scientist for a long time. We'll leave it at that. Uh, so I have a lot of colleagues and, and they're always willing to help me. So I set that in motion. They give me references. I read the references. So I do that big chunk of research before I start. But as I'm writing, I'm constantly Constantly researching, constantly going out to the net to check every little thing. Can she make a left-hand turn off, you know, Boulevard René Lévesque or, you know, whatever. Google Google Earth, you know, Google Maps, you know, those things are really neat because now you can go places that you would be prohibited from going like me. I, I'm not allowed in Russia. So it's like driving by GRU headquarters is not something you can do in, unless you get on Google Maps and you can say, oh, here's the tree line, you know, here's this. Okay, yeah, yeah, it's true. Hey, um, and so from your, um, like say, your process of writing, um, when you mentioned you're coming out to Washington, D.C., speaking of where there's a lot of bodies buried uh, out, in the, out in the capital area, you know, for, you know, figuratively and literally, um, what what interested you about D.C.? What, what made you pick that? Because that's like a lot of your angle is going to be unique because the way you approach the case. But, you know, D.C. has been used for so many things, you know, espionage, thrillers, political stuff. What's going to be without giving it away? But what's going to be your take on D.C.? Well, it'll be from the point of view of a. F- you know, a case that Tempe gets involved in, it starts out with a fire in Foggy Bottom and it, uh, she's going to end up, you know, working with those victims and they discover this sub cellar 
which isn't on any of the plans and what's that all about. And then it's going to bring in some of the history of the district and uh, some of the things that went on in the district back, oh, I don't know, from the 20s through the 50s. Yeah, State Department's there in Foggy Bottom. I think the old CIA headquarters used to be near Foggy Bottom as well. Yep. Yeah, there's, there's, I've read a lot of books, well, not a lot, but I've read a few books where the WNOD trail comes in and always plays a prominent part with, with finding bodies in the weeds and in the woods. And hey, Don't say that. I ride that. I'm actually going out on the trail this afternoon on my bike to take a ride. Don't <laughs> tell me that about bodies. Which trail is it? I'm sorry? The Washington and Old Dominion. It's an old railroad, okay. and it starts actually in Alexandria okay. and comes all the way through Fairfax County, Loudoun County, and terminates in Percival. Okay. WNOD is what everybody calls it. Yeah, it's about 45 miles one way. Um, so I've done the round trip before, uh, which is fun. Um, <clears throat> That's we used to, when I was going through language school in D.C., We that was our running trail to try yeah. to stay in shape. But it's it's very, very well known. Yeah, and you've got, yeah, and then plus um, uh uh, you, there's so many, so many great trails out there. Um, now that's interesting because you know that's the thing people don't realize. There's so much hidden stuff at, in in Washington D.C. and around this whole area. Days from the Cold War, from World War II. You know, from when uh, Lafayette helped build. Uh, you know, and Dupont. I was just down at Dupont Circle Monday, actually, Steve, with Julie Redkay. We had. I'll tell you about yeah. that later, but. Um, uh, had a great so there's so much history there. Um, I love the way, like I said, you incorporate history, you incorporate these things. Um, so let me ask you something. See if you know about this. Uh, I actually ran into this guy. I talked with him. Have you ever heard the name Doctor Arpad Voss? Oh yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I just we was actually he worked on a couple cases out here in Virginia. He's got the he got his patent for the quantum oscillator. Um, and so what's really neat is you can identify. Um, you take a drop of blood or you know fingernails, anything that has DNA in it, you can locate things even from 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so, looking at clandestine grave sites, you know these things. That's is does any of that will has that or will that factor into any of your books? Um, uncertain at this point. Right now, not not expecting to use that. My undergraduate job, I was a student at American University. My undergraduate job was on the tourmobiles that used to go around the Washington Monument, the oh, yeah? Memorial, the whole uh, base, the, the, what do you call it? The basin, what do you call it? The Potomac River Basin. Tidal Basin. The that- Tidal Basin, that whole area. That was my job. So, and then my daughter lives there now. So I know okay, the district pretty well. Yeah. And what it, part of the district is she in? Is she in D.C. or? In not, Northwest Washington, in up way up near. She owns two homes. One's in Mount Pleasant and one's up near Chevy Chase. It's a part of the district in the district called Chevy Chase in the district, I think. Got it. Yeah, our oldest daughter's still in Arlington. Okay. No, she's right in. And I'm in Loudoun County, so Murph, the traitorous bastard, moved on me about, what, a year and a half ago now, was Almost it? Almost two years. Almost two years. I'm in Orlando hey. now. Oh, okay. Couldn't take it with me. So let's... <laughs> Not many people can, Morgan. I, I know. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an acquired taste. Um, well, so let's let's finish talking about the bone hacker here as we bring this to a close. So um, I love the name Temperance Brenner because Temperance to me um, is, it's almost like a 1920s name. You know, it's like, uh, you know, as you come up with this, was that a name from your past? I did a program called Semester at Sea. Years ago, it was a, it's a ship that goes around the world. I think it's now out of Virginia. It was out of Pitt at the time. And there was a student on board named Tempe. And I just liked the name Tempe. But since my character is a good Irish Catholic girl, she had to have a, you know, a full baptismal name. So I elongated it to Temperance. Um, the Katie character is kind of a composite between my two daughters. So I didn't want my son to be left out. His name is Brendan. So that's where Brennan comes from. So that's the Temperance Brennan. Oh, cool. Nice. See, these so, are inside facts nobody will ever know about unless they listen to Game of Crimes. That's right. Hey, well, the other thing, too, is you when you launch a book, too, kind of tell us about that, too, because one of uh, our friends, the guy that's working with me, he just launched his second book. He, he actually, he wrote, uh, do you know Ryan Steck? Sorry. He, he, he's the real book spy. So when you said international thriller writer, so he's involved with a lot of that. So he just released his second book. Actually, we did his interview. It just came out uh, Tuesday. What's the process for you? I mean, because you're at a you're at a you're a completely different level. You're like guys like us. We're in high school, and you're in the pros. Um, but when you go out and you release this book, what's your schedule like? Uh, 
as because I was looking at your uh, website, looking at all the places you're going to go. You do virtual stuff. You do things like this. I mean, you go to a lot of places. What's it like when you launch a book? How busy is it for you during that time? It's busy. It's busy, and I. It's frustrating because I don't get an. I have a book due in November, a manuscript, and I don't get to spend much time at the keyboard. But I just have to tell myself, okay, that's two weeks that are going to be blocked out. One for travel, and travel isn't as arduous as it used to be before COVID. Before COVID, we would do these. 12 and 15 city tours um, this year at least was not nearly that that bad and then you d- and now we do a lot of virtual events um, such as this one so that makes it easier as far as the travel but it still takes up a lot of time that I could be spent writing it's fun to get together with my readers but everybody knows that travel through airports nowadays is not much fun you know, and, and for our listeners that haven't done much traveling, you, they're probably thinking 12, 13 nights, you know, 15 nights in a row, big deal. I mean, you, you go you, you go sleep in a different bed every night for two weeks and see how you feel. It's, we've well, done, you know, we've done. Am I in room 1224 or 326 <laughs> or 927? Or, you know. I have or you, to take a picture of the hotel and of my room when I leave because when I come back, you're right. I, there were times I would do four or five days in a row. You know, you'd be out on the road, like you say, Steve, different hotel. Mm-hmm. But the other part, too, is schlepping all your baggage around. When you check yeah. out of a hotel, I got a bag, I got my computer bag, you know, and so you feel like you're homeless, you know, for five days. You're just. Well, not, not to mention, you might wake up in the middle of the night and actually go to the bathroom in the closet instead of the rhythm of the bathroom, you know? <laughs> What's the <laughs> I don't check a bag either. I have done three-week tours without checking a bag. Wow. You just look ahead. Where will I be for two nights? And then you send everything out to be cleaned. So um, now now in the process of this, so you've got you've got uh, books, you've got a, a different series, you've got a television series. Is there a movie in your future? That would be up to uh, Disney now. We're not clear who owns the option because I optioned the Temperance Brennan character to Fox and then Fox was bought by Disney. So um, they hold that those rights. So they could make a feature film, but uh, who knows? Have you heard anything at all from them? Or No. No, I know Emily and David, Emily Deschanel and David Boreanis just did an interview where they both said they'd love to do a reboot or a reunion or whatever, but who knows? Yeah. What would you, because you know, the, the thing too with a movie is it never, the great thing about a book um, is that you can dive into it. You can blow out the characters. You can do a lot of stuff with a movie. It's kind of tough to do because you've got to, everything's got to be compressed, like whatever it is, you know, 90 minutes, two hours, right? Right. So, so if you're going to do a movie, uh, do you have a particular book um, or a combination of books you would like that movie to be about? I don't, I guess Deja Dead is a great story. Um, be a good place to start. It's the beginning. So yeah. Hey, and you are also in a very technical field. Like we said, you gave the shout out to Gates early on. What are you finding when you go out and you talk to people? Um, is this an area of, especially the science? You know, we talk about STEM, but the science. You know, do you see more kids getting into it? Do, are you, are you getting questions from parents? You know, about your books. Hey, this interests my kids. What are you seeing out there from the youth of America? They're really interested in forensics. And I don't know why all of a sudden we're, you know, beginning maybe 20 years ago, we, we, nobody heard of us. And then all of a sudden we're hot. So a lot, maybe my books contributed, maybe the show contributed. Um, anyway, there are a lot of students now who are interested and a lot of women, which is gratifying who are interested in the field. Well, you know, so I started in law enforcement in 75 and, and it was a small town in West Virginia. We only had 35 officers went through my criminology classes and you get a, you get a a taste for forensics, whether it's just collecting footprints out in the mud or or whatever it might be, fingerprints, whatever. But it seems like through the, the like series like bones and the books that come out that the young people, it's more popular now because they see it on TV and it piques their interest. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that DEA is having an issue right now is recruiting uh, potential special agents because DEA has been terrible at promoting itself, whereas you've got the Bureau, who probably has thousands of people in their in their waiting queue and can fill every well, class. Well, they got that they five or on. six television series going on right now about the exactly, episode. exactly. So I think I think your series Bones was very instrumental in in piquing everybody's interest to find out more about it and get into, involved. One of the things I always tell students is don't major in forensic science. You'll learn about it but you won't learn a skill that's saleable in a crime lab. 
major biology or chemistry or something where you've got a skill that you can then learn about the forensic aspects of it on the side. And they often don't want to hear that because that's harder. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a very, very good point. Yeah. Well, you mean, look, I world, mean, <laughs> yeah, you look at me. Degree, you got to be able to get a job. You exactly. Know, underwater basket weaving. There's not a really big demand for that. You know, the thing I'm impressed about you, see, I couldn't do what you do. I, I love the science part, but I was more behavioral stuff. I used to teach interview and interrogation. I actually had the chance to teach out at the National Security Agency to damage assessment agents involved in espionage cases. I really like the mind parts of the behavioral science unit, but I like the way you bring in the behavioral stuff, you know, the, uh, the archaeology, I mean, the ancient stuff, it's like digging up bones. It's like, what can the ground tell us? You know, what can the position of everything tell us? I, I mean, just so that's really cool. Um, so I know we've got, you've got a hard stop here coming up here because you're popular. You've got lots of you're interviews prepared. coming up. Yeah, so, yes. this yeah. is, and you know, Kathy, this has been a real honor to have you on the show. I, thank you very much for coming on and, and, uh, we just wish you, for you know, and please contact my publicist next year to do it again. Oh, oh, we absolutely will. Uh, because, you know, once being on this podcast, you will be launched into the stratosphere. You will bypass Stephen King in terms of number of books sold. We we have, you know, hopefully, if we could do that, we want 10% as your unofficial agent. Okay. So okay. Yeah, and we can pretty much guarantee you'll sell an extra eight or nine books after this interview. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Hey, guys, so let's end up. So you guys got to go out there. This is book number 22 in the series. Uh, Kathy Reich's A Temperance Brennan novel, The Bone Hacker. You guys got to go out and get this. And obviously they can get it anywhere. They can get it, you know, Amazon, you know, Barnes and Noble, name your favorite uh, online place. Is there any place it's not? I don't think so. And it's all over the world. It's in many, many languages. And uh, I think you can get it at just about any place books are sold. Do you have a website where it's available also? KathyRikes.com will give you links to go to booksellers. And of course, we try to support the independent booksellers. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. So they can find me everywhere. And a platform formerly known as Twitter. Now we have to say I'm on X, which if drug terms, that's ecstasy. I'm not on X. Yeah. I'm not I'm on, on the- X, right. <laughs> the people on there might be on X. <laughs> they might be. Hey, well, Kathy, we can't tell you. First of all, thank your publicist. We're, we're honored that you guys reached out to us. Yes. We're honored that you shared some time with us. Best of luck on this stuff. And if you do put a movie together, um, don't give away the ending. Don't make it about Pablo Escobar because he's dead. He's so dead. We yeah. wish- <laughs> so I've heard. Thank you so much. 